to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice because uh, before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from the time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and, and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Nephthalim, Nephthali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Nephthali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were, they were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and all people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, 
the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Uh, I have uh, an extremely overachieving friend who just released her first novel. It's infuriating. Uh, The pure mathematician, get this, the pure mathematician turned astrophysicist, turned economic analyst for Macquarie Bank, has just written her first book. Disgusting. Uh, it's this book, uh, this, this mortal coil. It's, it's one in that long line at the moment of what you'd call dystopian novels. Uh, she thinks of this future where we've worked out how to directly hack into people's DNA with computers. Weird, great, annoying. Uh, but it got me thinking uh, about how many dystopian novels there really are going around at the moment. I, you know, you've got The Road and Cormac McCarthy and Hunger Games, they're a bit old now, but recently, even this year, there's been so many books. You can think of anything you think is wrong with the world, uh, and someone's written a book about how that could destroy the world, effectively. Um, Jill Laporte was reflecting on this in The New Yorker, and she says, you know, dystopian fiction has actually changed recently. She says this, Dystopia used to be a fiction of resistance. It's become a fiction of submission. The fiction of an untrusting, lonely, and sullen 21st century. The fiction of helplessness and hopelessness. It cannot imagine a better future. And it doesn't ask anyone to bother to make one. What the reams of dystopian novels tells us is that we are a culture bent in with a darkened, pessimistic imagination of what could come. We spend our time imagining all the thousands of ways which we could meet a violent, diseased-ridden, broken end. You know what? I think Advent does the same thing, but in reverse. In Advent, we stop dreaming about the way humanity will destroy the earth and start dreaming about the way God is going to save it. We stop meditating darkly on the the shadows and the darkness of our world and start meditating on the hope that is to come. We say to each other and we say to our hearts, if it is ever going to change, It only Jesus Christ will bring it. And so in the next four weeks, as we run up to Christmas, I want to invite you, I want to summon you to put aside the pessimistic, darkened imagination of your culture and take up the hope-filled light of the coming kingdom of God. Today we're going to meditate on peace Biblical peace, as it is in Isaiah 9. And I think there's no better thing uh, in a world with a rising nuclear power, with countless shootings, cycles of violence without end. Is there anything we need to dream, redream? Uh, it is peace and where on earth it could possibly come from. So we're going to look at peace in Isaiah 9. We've got two things about peace. And then the third thing we're going to do is think about what we do with that. Two things and then what we do about it. The first is this, peace 
is when the darkness is dispelled forever. Peace is when the darkness is dispelled forever. Drink this in chapter 9, verse 1. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. What a glorious statement. I don't know what you've walked into church with this evening. What darkness presses in, in your own heart, in your own body, in your own life, in the world around. Isaiah 9 verse 1 says this, it's got an expiry date. One day the darkness will be dispelled forever. But that raises the question, doesn't it? What does Isaiah mean when he says darkness? And to get that, we have to jump back a few verses to verse 21. It's on the screen. I think this is the original dystopian vision, by the way. I think everyone's just copying this. How about this for an optimistic future? Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they're famished, they'll become enraged and looking upward, curse their king and their God. They'll look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. And they will be thrust into utter darkness. Cheery, isn't it? Uh, It's an interesting picture. There's so many aspects to it. There's this break between God and man. There's this emotional distress. There's this physical hungering. There's this deep hopelessness. And this, this pressing out into the darkness. What you have a picture of here is of Israel's future as prophesied by Isaiah, of the apocalyptic event when the king of Assyria would sweep through and submit and submerge Israel, break them, oppress them, tax them. It was the apocalyptic event they hoped would never happen, and Isaiah says, it's coming. And God himself has sent it as judgment. And so we get a picture here, I think, not just of the darkness that awaited Israel, but it's a picture of the darkness of our world, isn't it? A world under the judgment of God, separated from Him, filled with physical hunger, filled with emotional distress, filled with hatred, and ending up toward darkness. But Isaiah says in verse 2, That the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Darkness will come, Isaiah says. But then the light will come from somewhere else and break upon us and dispel the darkness forever. He goes on in verse 4 and says, it'll be like that day when God defeated Midian, who was a a brutal old oppressor of Israel who put them in abject poverty. It'll be like that day. God's going to shatter the burden that is on your shoulders, the yoke and the rod of the oppressor. God will break Assyria one day. He will end their terrible reign, their submission and the destruction they bring on Israel. It's a glorious picture 
That's why the joy is there in verse 3. Liberation will come. But then do you notice, Isaiah, he doubles down on it, doubles down on the promise in verse 5. It's not just that Assyria will be broken. It's that all war will be broken. Every warrior's boot used in battle, every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, fuel for the fire. Those things which men used to dress themselves in to walk out to war, boots that made people tremble, things covered in the blood of foes, people slain, those things uh, that were no as a, being pictured as if they are no longer useful, as if all wars has stopped, and it's time to get rid, rid of those final pieces that remind us of the old things of war. They are thrown in the fire to be remembered no more. Isaiah says, when the light comes, it will dispel the darkness of Assyria, but then it will go further. It will dispel the darkness forever. It will rid it from our world. That is a remarkable promise, friends, isn't it? An incredible day when God's light breaks upon this world. It's even more incredible when you think about how impossible it is and has proven to be to rid our world of violence. Simon Crightley, an English professor of philosophy, reflects on this and he says, see, the problem with violence is it's not so much a question of a single act. Rather, violence is best understood as a historical cycle of violence and counterviolence. It's a double act that traps human beings in a repetitive pattern from which it is very hard to escape. Violence, especially political violence, is usually a pattern of aggression and counteraggression that has a history which stretches back into time. Humanity has been stuck in cycles of war and violence and hatred from their very beginning. And the only way we've tried to get rid of violence is with violence, with counter-aggression. And we are so trapped that there is nothing that is within us that can break it. So what Isaiah is prophesying is so radical It can only come via a divine hand. Think about what it means for a second. The end of all violence. No more nation against nation. No more ideological people rising up to kill. No more violence in families. No more hatred in the workplace. No more class war. No more race war. The end of hatred. The breaking of the spirit and the darkening in man that makes for war at all is a complete renewal and overturning of all things. Isaiah says peace is going to come when the darkness is dispelled forever. But the second thing about peace is this. Peace, according to Isaiah in chapter 9, is not just about the absence of darkness. It's about the presence of light. Not just the absence of darkness, but the presence of light. We often think of peace as the end and the ceasing of things. But Isaiah says peace is actually a beginning. It's a dawn. It's the start of something. It's when the royal sun in verse 6 
begins to reign. For to us, a child is born, and to us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. The only way to end oppression is for a, a reign to be set up that ends all other reigns and somehow is able to cancel all the, the spirit of war in man completely. And Isaiah sees that the presence of this royal son will enact that. It will be the coming of the light that dispels the darkness. Now, to understand this picture a bit in verse 6 and 7, uh, Isaiah is really contrasting the coming royal son with two kings around in his time. One is the king of Judah, and the other is the king of Assyria. The king of Judah at the time, King Ahaz, you can read about him in chapter 7 and 8, um, basically, he was a coward. He made enormous political mistakes out of fear. Driven by fear rather than trust in Almighty God and led Judah into ruin. In contrast to King Ahaz, what will the royal son be like? Well, he'll take the government on his shoulders. He'll buck up to his responsibility. And he will be a wonderful counselor. Literally, he'll, get, he'll make every decision right. He'll get every decision right. Can you imagine a politician getting every decision right? I can't. But here we have a royal son who'll get every decision right, and he'll be a prince of peace. The decisions he makes will lead to flourishing for the kingdom beneath him. And it's not that he just has human strength, he has defined strength. He's labeled kind of ambiguously an everlasting father and a mighty God. Somehow he's endured with divine strength to dispel darkness from his kingdom in the presence of his light. He is steady and strong and wise and mighty in a way that Ahaz never has been. The other king was the king of Assyria, Tiglath-Pileser III. Now, he was just basically really into himself. Uh, and he, his uh, superpower kind of just sprawled out like a marauding mass across the ancient Near East, and he was just bent on conquering and moving outward. And everywhere his armies went was submission, crippling tax, and destruction. Death and exile. Wherever he was, was oppression. You notice how in, in verse 7, the royal son kind of gets described in the same way. It says the increase of his government, which actually is the word domination, will have no end. Sounds like he's another despot, like Tiglath. But what is everywhere where he is? Of the increase of his government, and peace, there will be no end. Wherever the royal son is, is peace. Not oppression and destruction, crippling tax, but flourishing. That's what happens under him. He builds a kingdom and establishes it and upholds it with justice and righteousness. He is a king like the Near East has never seen. 
And in the divine strength given to him, he will break oppression and and dispel the darkness forever. Ending violence and slavery and greed and all the things that were breaking the world. And so, Jesus Christ came. As we read in Matthew, he was in Galilee and walked along Zebulun, like in verse 1. And everywhere where he was, there was healing. Every disease, it says in Matthew. People started to see. Lepers, uh, their skin got fixed so they could come back into society. People who were cut off by the religious elite were allowed back in by the grace of God. People who had never known God were connected back to him. All those elements of darkness that were holding the world were being rolled back in the presence of Jesus Christ, the royal son. And in the light of his presence and in his kingdom, no darkness can stand. Jesus Christ, the royal king of Isaiah 9, who walked around inviting people, summoning them into his eternal light. Peace is not just the absence of darkness. Peace is the presence of the royal king, Jesus. And wherever he and his kingdom are, flourishing grows. That is what we are waiting for. For his eternal kingdom. But the question is, well, what do we do with that now? What does waiting look like for that? We're just going to get depressed writing more dystopian fiction and we'll just, it'll be okay in the end? We'll just kind of go along with the darkness while we're here and just wait? I don't think that's what waiting in the Christian life actually looks like. Uh, that prayer we prayed earlier in the service is one of my favorite ones in the entire Anglican prayer book. And I think the first line of it, which is a quote from Romans 13 verse 12, really tells you what to do when you wait for the royal son. Do you what it was? First line. Cast away the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Cast away the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. You see, our world full of smartphones that tell us every tragedy as it occurs, that bend us into the dark pessimism of our age as we scroll through watching our, uh, eating our cornflakes and cornflakes, cornflakes, and we see, you know, a baby and then a terrorist attack and then a friend's birthday and then a shooting. And, and the darkness kind of presses in and makes us, forms us into this passive pessimism, pushing us into an- anxious passivity. You know, the hope of the resurrection, the hope of the world to come, does exactly the opposite to us. Rather than pushing us into pessimism, it summons us to put on our armor. And while we wait, live in the power of the King's eternal light in the present darkness. We are to put on the armor of light. You were not made for anxious, passive pessimism. You were made to put on the armor of the royal sun in a dark world. 
when you wake up tomorrow morning and you walk out and your housemates are there, or your family is there, or someone's there, or you walk into your cafe, you put on your armor and you say to yourself, I wonder what this cafe would look like in the world to come. I wonder how I can be present in that way to this cafe, to this household, to my family this morning. You walk out and you go to work, you go into your classroom, you go into your, your uni exam and you say, I am putting on my armor of light. I'm casting away the works of darkness. I wonder what the royal sun would bring into my workplace. I wonder what he doesn't like. I wonder what I should bring in. You look at your life and what's happening and the habits you have and you say, I need to put on the armor of light. You know, putting on the armor of light is an everyday simple activity. Often it's in the small, annoying moments of life that we need the grace of God the most to break the habits of hatred and sin that bind us all the time. We are called in the present to live out and create echoes of the coming kingdom of the royal son. And, you know, it's not like we're bringing the kingdom into the world. We can't do that. You can't dispel the darkness forever. He will, and he can. And you with your armor on in the present darkness, do you know what you are? You are a protest. You are a proclamation. You are an invitation. It says, one day, the darkness will be dispelled forever. And it's going to look a little something like this. Come and give yourself to the royal sun. In a chaotic, dark world, you are to put on the armor of light, casting away the work of darkness. But the problem for that, uh, if I'm honest with myself, is that I am really, really not an agent of peace. I can tell you some things about my life yesterday that would make that very clear to you. It is very obvious to me that the darkness is not something out there. It's something in here. I see the cowardice of Ahaz in my heart. I see an unwillingness to do things out of fear of others, only doing things when it fits in with them as well. I see in my heart the pride of Tiglath, pushing out my own kingdom in vainglory, looking out for me, spreading my empire, rather than looking out for others. I am not an agent of peace. I am stuck in a cycle of violence. But you know what Romans 13 goes on to say after it says, put on the armor of light? It says, clothe yourself in Jesus Christ. Because you know, there is only one agent of peace in the world, and it is Jesus Christ. He was the light of the world. In him there was no darkness at all. And yet he stepped into the world as light and was extinguished by the darkness, by our cycles of violence and under the wrathful judgment of the living God. You see, my darkness was extinguished in him. Why did he let his light be extinguished? That I might become light in him. That I might come out of the world of darkness into the kingdom of light. And as he rose from the dead, he brings us all up into his kingdom. 
And so we know walking around in this world that yes, we are, not, <laughs> we, are, we are not agents of peace. There's darkness in us. There's no room for pride. And yet we are clothed in the armor of the royal sun. And there is nothing that can give us more courage than knowing that we walk in his power and not our own. Friends, you were once darkness, but now you are light in him. So cast aside the work of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let's pray. Our Father, we uh, moan and groan under the weight of the darkness we know. A world disconnected from you, a world filled with hunger and pain and anguish and difficulty and war and violence. And we are so thankful that one day the darkness will be dispelled forever at the coming of Jesus in his glorious light. And Father, we are not agents of peace. But because of his death and resurrection, we who were once darkness are now light. And so clothe us in the armor of the royal sun. And in his power, send us out to echo his final peace in protest, proclamation, and invitation until he comes to the glory of his name. Amen. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.